Hello podcasters and welcome to another episode of our Banking Litigation Podcast. Today Kerry and I are joined by Emma Dees, a senior associate in our banking litigation practice. As well as specialising in banking disputes, Emma has newly returned from secondment at a leading investment banking client. So welcome, Emma. Hello. Over the past month, there's been what feels like a deluge of decisions looking at uh, duties of care in the financial services sector, with a high number of very high-profile judgments, which I'm sure will be on uh, the radar of many of our listeners out there. So we're going to devote this particular episode to duties of care as a broad theme and then break it down to look at the key issues which have been considered alongside this broad umbrella. I don't think we could start this edition in any other way than looking at the judgment in the Lloyd's HBOS litigation. Kerry, I believe you're going to kick us off. Yes, indeed. Thanks, John. Uh, so this is the case of Sharp and Blank, uh, probably better known as the Lloyd's HBOS litigation, as you rightly say, John. And I'm sure we all know that this is uh, the claim brought by a group of shareholders against Lloyds relating to its acquisition of HBOS back in 2008. And as this is the first shareholder class action to reach trial in England and Wales, the judgment has been hotly anticipated by the legal community. But the wait is over, the judgment is in, and the outcome is that the High Court has dismissed all of the shareholders' claims against Lloyds. There's a lot to unpack in this judgment, so much so that we've actually recorded a separate podcast with a more detailed analysis. We acted for Lloyds in the litigation, so we have one of the lead partners and key associates sharing their insights in that one. So it's definitely worth a listen if you're interested. And I believe there's a link in the show notes. Yes, there is. That's right. Great. So um, I'll give you the extremely high level summary here. As a reminder, in order to go ahead with the acquisition, Lloyd's needed shareholder approval. And the claims here related to the recommendation given by the board to the shareholders to vote in favour of the acquisition, and also to the adequacy and accuracy of the disclosure of information about the merits of the acquisition itself. So turning to the outcome, the court found that the directors of Lloyd's were not negligent in making the recommendation to shareholders to vote in favour of the acquisition of HBOS. And as to the disclosure case, the court said that the directors owed an equitable duty to disclose sufficient information to enable shareholders to make an informed decision, and also a common law duty not to negligently mistake. It found that there were two pieces of information which Lloyds should have disclosed in order to satisfy its duties on disclosure. However, the claimants failed to prove that any defects in disclosure were actually relied upon or caused loss to the shareholders. And so the claim did not succeed. So that is a very quick rattle through the duties points in the judgment. But I think that's probably all we need given our separate podcast on this case. Well, thank you for the uh, quick summary, uh, summary, Kerry. Um, I would commend the special edition to you all. Um, It is um, uh, particularly interesting hearing from, as Kerry noted, the uh, partner and lead associate um, uh, from the matter. We're going to jump straight from uh, Lloyd's H. Boss, um, uh, the first shareholder class action in the UK, to the first one in Australia. Um, that is the case of Meyer, uh, a shareholder class action uh, judgment uh, before the Australian courts. Uh, and we're uh, talking about this one today to highlight some of the most interesting comparisons from an English law uh, perspective. Securities litigation is definitely one of the areas uh, where it's important uh, to be aware of what's going on in other jurisdictions. Uh, There are legal concepts which are still being developed, uh, particularly uh, where claims are brought on behalf of a class of shareholders. 
Uh, and so claimants, defendants and the judiciary are looking at how these issues are being tackled outside uh, their own jurisdiction. The key point of interest from the Australian uh, Meyer decision relates to the Australian court's view of how a group of shareholders can prove that they relied on a misleading statement or omission. Yeah, which is a notoriously tricky hurdle for claimants in a group action to overcome. Precisely. And as you just said, it was one of the points in which the shareholders uh, failed in the Lloyd's HMOS litigation in England. So in this case, Meyer shareholders put forward what they called a market-based approach to causation. Uh, Here, the alleged breach was a failure to provide continuous disclosure following a profit update from uh, Meyer's CEO. The shareholders' case was that the continuous disclosure breaches caused their loss on the basis that the market price assumed the disclosure of all material information. Because the claimants purchased their shares at market price, they said, therefore, they suffered a loss by overpaying for their shares. Or to look at it another way, the market share price was inflated because it did not take account of the information which ought to have been disclosed by Meyer and which would ultimately have brought the share price down. And the Australian court, in contrast to the approach in the English court, accepted this market-based causation theory, albeit that the judge ultimately found that the shareholders had not proven their loss for other reasons. So this type of causation theory has not been approved in shareholder claims in the UK? That's right. Um, uh, Neither market-based causation nor the US uh, approach of fraud on the market theory, which is similar but a bit distinct from market-based causation, uh, neither of those has been accepted uh, in the English courts. So the latest word on this from an English perspective is still a Lloyd's H boss. Yes, that's right. Uh, and a reminder, the, um, the rule there is that shareholder reliance must be proved on an individual basis as distinct from the Australian or American approach of a market approach. So sticking with shareholder class actions, I'm going to turn to Emma now for an update on developments in the ongoing shareholder action against Tesco. Thanks, John. So, as a reminder, the underlying claim here relates to failures in Tesco's reporting of commercial income and trading profits back in 2014. And as many of you will be aware, a group of shareholders have brought a claim against Tesco under Section 90A FISMA, alleging that they have suffered loss because of those misleading statements. Tesco recently applied to the High Court to strike out the claim, but their application failed, and I'm going to take a quick look at the reasons why. So the nub of Tesco's argument was that the claims fall outside of the four corners of the FISMA regime as a matter of statutory interpretation, because the legislation has failed to keep pace with the way the intermediated securities market has developed. And in particular, Tesco pointed to the fact that shareholders did not have paper share certificates and instead held the shares in what we call dematerialised form through CREST. And it also pointed to the fact that shares were held in custody chains with more than one intermediary, with the shares being registered in the name of the financial institutions providing custodian services to the claimants. Now, that does not sound unusual to me. It sounds like it would capture most of the intermediated securities market, wouldn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. However, Tesco said that if you look closely at the wording of Section 90A and Schedule 10A FISMA, the regime does not work in these circumstances as a matter of statutory interpretation. The thrust of Tesco's main argument was that the holders of intermediated securities don't have the necessary interest in the shares to be able to make a claim under the statutory regime. 
unfortunately we don't have time to pick apart the finer points of the statutory interpretation argument here and it would be tricky to do so in a podcast forum Uh, but we have an excellent blog post which explores the details of this argument and there's of course a link in the show notes of course and so to finish this off and as I said at the outset Tesco's strikeout application failed the court found that section 98 FISMA can apply where claimants hold their shares through crest and so this decision confirms that there's no fundamental hole in the FISMA regime for intermediated securities. And it's worth noting that the court was clearly guided by the fact that any other result would have undermined a legislative scheme which is designed to encourage accurate and timely disclosure by issuers and which promotes investor protection. And while those rights have been preserved by the judgment, the High Court has granted permission for Tesco to appeal to the Court of Appeal. We'll, we'll certainly watch the progress of that appeal with interest and keep our podcasters updated. Definitely. Now, I'm sure that some of our podcasters will have been following our discussions on the hot topic of the Quinscare duty recently, and we're returning to it yet again this month, this time with the decision of the Supreme Court in Singularis. Kerry, do you want to talk us through that in our deep dive session? Yeah, of course, John. So this is the long-awaited judgment in Singularis and Daiwa, Uh, which has now been handed down, and which, as you say, John, gives us the first Supreme Court decision on the so-called quince care duty of care. You may remember from last month, we talked about the JP Morgan and Nigeria case, where this duty featured heavily. So as a brief reminder of the facts of Singularis, Singularis held sums on deposit with the bank and had an authorised signatory on the account, the account Mr Al Sanir, who held a lot of power within Singularis. He was the sole shareholder, a director and also a chairman, president tre- and the treasurer of the company. Mr Al Sanir instructed the bank to make certain payments out of Singularis's account, which the bank approved and completed, even though there were, in the words of the ultimate judgment, glaring signs that he was perpetrating a fraud on Singularis. So in the High Court, this was the first case in which a bank was found to have owed and breached its quince care duty of care. Can you give us a quick recap as to what that duty encapsulates? Oh, yeah, happily. So it arises in exactly the context I've described here. um, And it's the duty imposed on the bank to refrain from executing a payment mandate if and for as long as it's put on inquiry so that it has reasonable grounds for believing that the order is an attempt to misappropriate the funds of its customer. So putting all of this into the context of the Singularis decision, at first instance, the court found that the bank had been put on inquiry and that the order from Mr al was an attempt to misappropriate funds, but that it had processed the payment requests anyway. The bank was therefore found to have breached its quince care duty and that breach, that was ultimately not appealed at all. So the issue for the Supreme Court was whether or not the bank could defeat this claim with the defence of illegality and certain other grounds of defence. But I'll focus on illegality as it was the main one and most interesting one. So there were two issues that the Supreme Court had to deal with. Whether the bank could rely upon the defence of illegality in response to a quince care duty claim, and if so, whether the illegal acts of Mr Alcineer could be attributed to Singularis. So if we look first at the scope of the illegality defence... I'm sure you're going to come to this, but can you remind us all of what we mean by the illegality defence? Oh yeah, of course, Emma. Um, No problem. So this is based on the principle that a claimant cannot pursue a civil claim if it arises in connection with some illegal act on behalf of the claimant. 
Ex turpi causa non oratur actio, if I remember correctly. Ah, perfect. Well done, John. <laughs> so to consider that more in English, the court assumed <laughs> that Mr. Alcinia's illegal acts could be viewed as the illegal acts of singularis. Yeah, exactly. Um, and making that assumption, the question was whether it was open to the bank to rely on the illegality defence in response to the Quince care claim. And the answer from the Supreme Court was no in categorical terms. Uh, the court walked through the three-stage test for the operation of the illegality defence, which was set down in Patel and Mirza. The court roundly rejected all three limbs. Now, I won't go into detail on the court's analysis of each limb of the test, but I can pull out what strikes me as the key takeaway, if you think that would be helpful. Oh, yes, no, please do go ahead. Okay, right. Well, the very essence of this test is whether enforcing the claim would be harmful to the integrity of the legal system. And I think the most important element of the three-stage test to highlight in this context relates to public policy. So here, the court placed particular emphasis on the role that financial institutions play in reducing and uncovering financial crime and money laundering. The view of the Supreme Court was that this public policy would be undermined if banks could escape the consequences of a claim like this by casting on their customers the illegal conduct of their employees. Sounds almost like the same logic would probably follow in most Quince Care claims. So is Singularis a nail in the coffin for the illegality defence in this context? Well, while this will always be a fact-specific exercise, this judgment certainly highlights the challenges that financial institutions are likely to face in making good an illegality defence in response to the Quince Care duty claim. Yeah, I agree. I think you're also going to briefly talk about the Supreme Court's conclusions on attribution. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you for the prompt, John. Um, the, the bank's argument here was that Singularis was effectively a one-man company and Mr. Alcinia was the controlling mind and will. And because of this, his fraud should be attributed to Singularis. Sounds like the very last decision of the House of Lords, uh, Stone and Rolls. John, you uh, have such good case name recall. That is exactly right. Um, The bank relied on the controversial and much criticised case of Stone and Rolls. So the way in which Stone and Rolls has been applied since it was decided by the House of Lords in 2009 is that it was effect- it's effectively been treated as establishing a rule of law that the dishonesty of the directing mind and will of a company can be attributed to the company if it is a one-man company, regardless of the context and purpose of the attribution. So the Supreme Court has finally laid this matter to rest and said this is not the case. Uh, whether the knowledge of a fraudulent director can be attributed to the company is always a matter of considering the context and the purpose of the attribution. So the fact that a company is a one-man company does not mean that you can avoid these considerations. So on the facts of this case, the context of the attribution was the bank's breach of its quince care duty. The purpose of that duty was to protect Singularis against the fraudulent acts of its trusted agent, Mr. Alcinia. And in those circumstances, Mr. Alcinia's fraud could not be attributed to Singularis. The court put it neatly by saying that to rule otherwise would denude the quince care duty of any value and effectively the quince care duty would cease to exist. Well, I hope you'd agree, podcasts are certainly an interesting development, particularly as multiple quince care duty claims are making their way through the courts at the moment. Uh, Moving on from current causes of action to what the future might look like, uh, Emma is going to touch on a potential new duty of care for financial institutions. Emma, can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah. So I'd like to talk about the recent private members bill that was introduced into the House of Lords in October, which proposed introducing a duty of care owed by financial institutions to consumers. So in terms of the content of the duty, the proposal says it would be an obligation on financial institutions to exercise reasonable care and skill when providing a product or service. What is not yet clear is whether, if the proposed bill became law, consumers would have a private cause of action against a bank if the duty was breached. And that's because the bill proposes that the duty would be introduced by the FCA, And it's the FCA's own rules which determine whether a breach would be actionable by a private person under Section 138D of FISMA. So, for example, currently private persons cannot sue for a breach of the FCA's principles of business, but they might be able to bring an action for a breach of the Conduct of Business Sourcebook or the COBS rules. Well, obviously, this is just a private member's bill uh, at this stage. Um, Do you have any indication of what approach the, the FCA might go for if it survives the election and is passed? Well, interestingly, the FCA published a discussion paper on this in 2018, and most of its respondents did not support a new duty of care. But as you say, it's very early stages, so we'll keep an eye out for progress on the proposed bill and any related commentary from the FCA. Thank you very much, Emma. Uh, Well, that rounds it off um, for um, this episode. Uh, Thank you all podcasters for joining. My special thanks to Emma um, for her uh, very informative uh, contribution. It's okay. And to Kerry for co-hosting. You're very welcome, John. As ever, podcasters, if you've got any questions arising out of the uh, episode, please look at the show notes or contact us and we'd be delighted to uh, give you our thoughts. Thanks very much. Until next time.